My name is Ethan. I'm the kids pastor here, and we are in this series called Christmas Classics. So at Christmas, we embrace tradition. We all know we have no problem. We love pulling out the same Christmas decorations year after year. We love listening to the same songs each year. If you're like me, you probably have some foods that you like to eat, some favorite Christmas meals or desserts each year. And then, of course, we pull out and rewatch those same Christmas movies. And so in this series, we're looking at some of those Christmas classics and looking at some of the themes behind those movies. And we're asking the question, well, what does the Bible have to say about those themes? So this morning, we're going to go all the way back to the 1940s. We're going to go to the Midwest, and we're going to look at the movie A Christmas Story. When this movie first hit the box office in 1983, it was kind of an underwhelming response initially. But then it really took off in the mid-90s when TNT on cable began playing it 24 hours over, uh, over 24 hours nonstop around Christmas and Thanksgiving. So my first memories of this movie is being a kid in the 90s, doing the Christmas Thanksgiving thing, and just kind of watching a scene here or there from that movie. It wasn't until recently that I actually saw the whole thing all together. So I'm sure many of you are in that same boat. And for some, this is probably one of your favorite Christmas movies. I personally really enjoy it. For others, I think we should just acknowledge this may be a least favorite that's okay. We can still learn from it together. <clears throat> but love it or hate it, of all the movies out there, this may be one of the easiest for us to relate to as individuals. It's from a child's perspective, and it's surprisingly insightful because it reveals a lot about the attitudes that we still experience as adults around this time of year. <clears throat> so the little boy Ralphie in this movie, he engages in one of the most epic struggles in all of cinematography that is the, the quest for the Red Rider BB gun. And so to acquire his prize, Ralphie employs every resource at his disposal, his wit, his charm, his cunning. Let's take a look at a trailer real quick. All right, so clearly one of the themes in this movie is high expectations followed by disappointment. Even in that last scene when you see Ralphie get told that he's going to shoot his eye out by Santa, you can see his expectations come crashing down metaphorically as he f falls down the slide. Um, so this is the time of year when, um, when we tend to set our expectations high as well. It's a relatable movie because we know what it's like to have high expectations for Christmas as a kid and be disappointed. Whether it's the disappointment of maybe not getting the thing that you wanted, the thing that you really had your heart set on, or maybe it's the disappointment of you actually get it and then find out that it's not all that you thought it was going to be. So we all know what it's like to experience that as a kid, but the funny thing is that as we grow older, the expectations and disappointment associated with the holidays, they don't just vanish, do they? One of the reasons for this, I think, is that our culture continues to tell us that this is the time of the year when we should set our expectations just sky high. As high as the expectations can get, that's how high they should be at this time of year. As marketing dollars soar at this time of year, our expectations, they just go right up with that. Advertisers tell us the things that we should want, the things that we deserve, and we're pretty inclined to believe them and we set our expectations according to that. But beyond just these material expectations, there's a subtler expectation that this is the time of the year when we should be living the most perfect possible version of our lives. Even our favorite Christmas songs kind of reinforce 
this idealized vision that we should be living out this time of year. Our Christmas songs, you know, this is, this is the most wonderful time of the year. Tis the season to be jolly. December, this is the month when chestnuts are roasting on an open fire, a winter wonderland, laughing all the way. And the impression that we're left with is that if you do not spend December in a state of just this perpetual bliss, then there must be something wrong with you. So have you begun to experience this holiday surge in expectations yet? I know that for myself, it kind of began with the rest and relaxation that I was expecting over the Thanksgiving holiday. I went with my wife. My wife and I went up to the mountains uh, to be with my side of the family. And I was just really excited for um, rest, relaxation. I brought, I brought a puzzle. I was going to do that puzzle. I brought three books. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought I was going to read three books. Um, <coughs> brought games to play with family. Was looking forward to conversations, enjoying the great outdoors. But the thing that I forgot to factor into my expectations was that we were also bringing these four people with us. <laughs> In addition to my wife and I, the four other people in that photo are four kids under the age four and under. And so, so we had a great time, but I quickly got a shot of reality and realized that my expectations of a week of R&R was going to be more just a week of, you know, parenting. It was parenting at 5,000 feet is what it ended up being. <laughs> so this might be the December where everything just finally comes together for you. You have that perfect December, perfect holiday season. But even if that is the case, we all know that 2019 is coming. And none of us is going to take a trip around this calendar that's free of disappointment. The spoiler is that in this next year, we're all going to experience highs and we're all going to experience lows. We don't know their severity. We don't know what form they'll take but we know that we will all have unmet expectations and we know that those unmet expectations are inevitably going to result in disappointment. And when disappointment happens, we actually find ourselves at a crossroad. We often don't recognize this, but we're actually at a crossroad. On one hand, we can take a route toward discontent. Our disappointment can lead to discontent. This is a route that's usually marked by things like anger or hurt maybe self-pity or bitterness. And you probably, as you look at that list, you probably have one or two of those that you know, oh yeah, those are mine. <laughs> those, that's, that's the one, those are the two that I default to. I know for me, I'd, I'd say that anger and self-pity, those are probably my favorites. Those are the ones that I default to. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's something kind of gratifying about these things. Uh, I, sometimes, you know, just a pity party, it's better than no party at all. <coughs> But if in our moment of disappointment, we choose to indulge in self-pity, hurt, bitterness, anger, we're actually traveling down a road that is a pretty dangerous road. It's a road that can lead to spiral down into greater sin, and it damages relationships. The other option at that crossroad, and the one that comes far less naturally to us, is choosing contentment. You have discontentment and contentment. If we recognize the disappointment's crossroads and choose contentment, we find that as a result, we can actually honor God and we can actually find joy. Even in the bleakest of circumstances, even in the most disappointing circumstances. But then how do we do this? It's, it's no secret that contentment is something that, that can be pretty elusive. But the Bible shows us that it's not out of reach for a follower of Jesus. 
listen to what Paul, who was a, Paul in the Bible, he was an early church planner. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. And uh, he's writing a letter to the Philippians that's a part of the Bible. And so we get to read that, that letter. Listen to what he says to the, the church there in Philippi. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need. And this is really true. Paul did know what it was to be in need. He had experienced hunger, persecution, he'd betrayal of close friends, prison. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. So Paul's saying here, he's saying, I know the road to contentment. He doesn't just have an intellectual knowledge of it. He's actually learned it firsthand. So he knows the road to contentment, and then he wants the recipients of his letter, the church at Philippi, to know that road and be able to walk that road to contentment as well. And so to understand what Paul's talking about, this secret of contentment, today we're going to look at three attitudes that we all always have to wrestle with, but that are more present at the holiday seasons. We're going to look at three attitudes that threaten to kill our contentment, and we're going to see how Paul's example and his words can help us overcome those contentment killers. So the first contentment killer that we're going to look at today, it's the attitude that says, I want what I want. This is the mindset that locks onto something that promises some degree of happiness and it says, I must have that. I must have that. In a Christmas story, there's no question what it is that Ralphie wants, right? He says, I want an official Red Rider carbine action 200 shot range model rifle air air rifle. I can't even say it. That's how complicated it is. He knows exactly what he wants (laughs) and he's locked in on it. And this is relatable. This is relatable to us because we all know what it's like to be a kid and just want something so bad that it just about makes you sick. But as we grow older, we change less than you might expect. We like to think that contentment is a byproduct of our age, a byproduct of just adding years onto life. But that really does not prove to be the case. We don't necessarily want less as we get older. Instead, we just, we want different. Our Red Riders change but our desire for those red riders, that doesn't go away. Our red riders, they can be, you know, bigger, shinier, fancier, more expensive toys, or more subtly, they can just be things that we want, like certain status, experiences for ourselves, experiences for our children. They can be people, you know, a spouse or someone else that we think is going to be able to make us happy. Our red riders, they take a lot of forms, but like Ralphie, we latch on to them. We latch on to what we want. And this I want what I want attitude, it's a contentment killer because what we're really saying is I want what I want and my happiness is contingent upon getting it. And furthermore, if I don't get it, I'm fully justified to let loose the anger, let loose that self-pity, go into bitterness to whatever degree I determine is fitting. So this is an environment that contentment just simply can't survive in. And the things that we want, they they can be really big things. Or they can be kind of trivial. They can be small things that we latch on to as well. This last, uh, this last spring, I was on a road trip with my wife and some friends. We got an early start, and around 7 a.m., I just started to want a McDonald's breakfast burrito. And so, you know, that's a pretty reasonable expectation. There's McDonald's, you know, every, every mile or so on a road trip. And so we pull into one of those, 7 a.m. Uh, my friend goes up. He orders his breakfast burritos. 
I step up, I order mine, and they say, oh, I'm sorry, your friend just ordered the last two. This is McDonald's, right? Are you kidding me? So I was okay. Okay, so well, what's going on? Well, the guy, the guy who makes the burritos, he's not here. He won't be in for another 20 minutes. I didn't realize there was a specific guy that made the burritos, but apparently that was the case. And uh, wow, it really threw me off. And so I think that, and I think if you also ask my wife or the other people who are with me, I pretty much just went down that anger, self-pity, bitterness, definitely had bitterness in that moment, went down that road all the way. And so afterward, I finally got some calories, settled down a little bit and realized, you know, in that moment, my happiness, my contentment was actually contingent upon a couple of McDonald's breakfast burritos. So the things that we want, they can be, they can be trivial, like a breakfast burrito, or they can be significant. Often the things that we latch onto are things like people or relationships, really significant things. And this is especially obvious at Christmas where you know, we want to be with the people that we love. We want to be with the people that we care about. But as is often the case, we, we're often prevented from that because of you know, death, because of broken relationships, or because of distance. So we can latch on to trivial things like a breakfast burrito. We can latch on to significant things like people, like relationships, or anything in between. But big or small, if our hope is placed in the wrong thing, then the discontentment clock is beginning to tick. And it's just a matter of time before it's triggered by that next disappointment. And so what is Paul's answer to this? He claims to have the secret to contentment. And is that secret just to avoid all hope, avoid all expectations, set a low bar so that we can avoid all disappointment and therefore avoid discontent? Is it just a sort of stoic detachment that allows Paul to rise above any sense of hope? Well, it's not that at all. If you look at Paul's life and if you look at this letter that he's writing, you can see that Paul actually approaches life with a sense of joy, a sense of, sense of gratitude. In this letter alone to the Philippians, he mentions joy or rejoicing 16 times. And it's a short book. Um, it's a short letter. He also mentions thankfulness and gratitude multiple times. So joy and gratitude, these are actually really essential parts of Christian contentment. Paul's secret to contentment is not a resignation to a lack of hope. Instead, it's a strong and it's a powerful, well-placed hope. It's not low expectations, but a high set of expectations in the right thing. And in chapter 3, verse 8, we see that Paul has placed all of his hope in Jesus. His hope is in Christ. He writes this in Philippians 3, 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So Paul came to a point in his life where he realized that none of his own efforts, nothing else was going to make him right with God. Only the sacrifice of Jesus could repair his broken relationship with God. And so he found forgiveness of sins in Jesus and he began to follow Jesus. And this resulted in a radical perspective change on what he thought was important in life. And so in this passage, we see now he's got two categories. He's got a gain category and a loss category. And in his gain category, what's the thing in there? Well, it's Christ. Christ is what is in his gain category. In his loss category, well, that's where he has everything else. And this doesn't mean that Paul is 
sour on everything, everything else in life other than Christ. Last week we talked about the Grinch who stole Christmas. This doesn't mean that Paul has a Grinchy attitude toward everything else in life, but it does mean that he has no expectation of anything in that lost category to save or to satisfy. Paul's contentment is stable because his hope is resting in the one thing that is stable, and that's Jesus Christ. So like Paul, we can respond to this I want what I want contentment killer by firmly declaring, reminding ourselves of this truth, if you're a follower of Christ, that my hope is in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you really have something worth hoping in. Your gain category, if you're following him, your gain category is full. The greatest problem of your sin has been solved by him. He's repaired your broken relationship with God. He's promised to work all things for the good of those who love him. He's promised you eternity with him in heaven. And so we need to expect highs and lows, those are going to come. But our great and our ultimate hope remains intact, even despite those. So as disappointments come, and you recognize this, I want what I want attitude, the attitude that we all experience, as you recognize that, prayerfully ask, where is my hope? Is it in, is it in someone Is it in maybe something that's coming up this weekend? Is it in a vacation? Is it in lunch? (laughs) Is it in retirement? Is it in something that's going to happen around Christmas? Is it in something under the Christmas tree? None of these are things that can bear the weight of our hope. None of them are worthy of our hope, and it's actually unfair of us to expect them to deliver. But if we can identify these things as false hopes, and redirect our hope back to the only one who's worthy of it, Jesus, then we can get back on the road to contentment. We can stay on that road to contentment. The second contentment killer that we have to deal with is the attitude that says, I know what I need. So in a Christmas story, Ralphie is totally convinced that not only does he know what his needs are, but that his parents are completely out of touch with those needs. If his perceived needs are going to be met, it is going to be by his own doing, despite his parents. So this leads him down a trail of scheming, manipulating, trying to manipulate his parents' subconscious to get what he wants. And this is actually what makes the movie funny. TNT, they're not going to play 24 hours of a movie about a boy who asks his parents for something for Christmas, knows they know best, and then just waits contentedly for, for Christmas morning. That's, uh, that's probably not one that's going to be a big fan favorite. But for us, what's really behind this attitude of I know what I need is the mindset that not only do I know my needs, but I know them better than God. And like Ralphie with his parents, if my needs are going to be met, it's going to be by my own doing. And it's going to be despite God. Sure, God loves me, but to keep from missing out, I think I need to take matters into my own hands here. This was actually the attitude that was behind the very first act of discontent in human history. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and look in chapter 3, we read about Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, which is just paradise on earth. They can eat from any tree, all the fruit, all the food that they can want right there in the garden, any tree except for one. And you'd think that if anyone on earth could be content that it would be Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden. But then what happens? Well, the serpent comes along, and he challenges God's trustworthy. 
Here's what he says to Eve in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. He says, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree, from any tree in the garden? And Eve replies, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And here's where the challenge to God's trustworthiness comes. The serpent says, you will, certain, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's saying, God's holding out on you. There's something better out there, and God is holding it back. You can follow God, you can obey God if you want, but he's going to rip you off in the end. He is deliberately keeping back what is good from you. He's deliberately keeping back what you really need from you. So Adam and Eve believed this lie. They ate the fruit. And now, even to this day, we're all still dealing with the consequences of this I know what I need attitude. And so what about Paul? You could actually look at Paul and say that he has more reason to question whether or not God is going to rip him off. Instead of being in the Garden of Eden, he's actually writing this letter from a prison cell. So he's writing from prison, and here's what he says to the Philippians. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, and we're in chapter 4, verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, which is interesting because being in prison, you'd think that he would be talking about his need, but he says, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And then he addresses the Philippians a few verses later in verse 19, and he says, and my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So even from prison, Paul can look at his situation and not panic because he knows that God is the one who knows his needs and is going to meet his needs. And he wants this attitude, he wants this reality to be true for the church that he's writing to as well. So Paul's response to the I know what I need attitude is that even when everything looks like it's going wrong, Christ has not ripped me off. Christ will not rip me off, and he's not going to rip you off either. And this is the same attitude that we can take. Christ knows my needs. Christ will meet my needs, and he's not going to rip me off. And if, you, if you boil this idea down to one word, I think the best word to describe it is trust. <clears throat> if every time it looks like things aren't going our way, we resort to panic and scheming and controlling, then contentment is something that's always going to elude us. The alternative, though, when we experience disappointment is to recognize, okay, things are not going my way right now, and ask the question, well, what is God trying to teach me here? I trust God. Things aren't going my way right now. What is he trying to teach me? How is he at work in this situation? Or what, is, what does this look like from his perspective? And try to gain his perspective. Or how, how can I follow him? How can I cooperate with him moving forward, even though I'm experiencing this disappointment right now. And I see this tension all the time between trust and distrust in my three and four-year-old daughters. Here's a picture of our family that was taken recently. This was after the trunk or treat that we did right here on October 31st. And you can see my, they're dressed as clowns, my daughters are, and uh, Millie, I think her hat is like down over her eyes. It's not supposed to be that way. But when we got home that night, we had bagfuls of candy. Many of you were probably there, got home with your kids too, with bagfuls of candy. And um, we realized something. We realized that their idea about the amount of candy that they needed to eat that night was very different 
from the idea that we had about the amount of candy that they needed to eat that night. And you could just kind of see the look on their faces as they were putting these pieces together. The look says, if I trust dad, things are not going to go well for me here. I am not going to have my needs, my candy needs met in this moment. And this isn't just something that we experienced once six weeks ago. You, anyone who's a parent knows that this is, this is an ongoing thing that you see in your kids, this, this battle between trust and distrust. But I think, it's, I think it's worth asking the question. It raises an interesting question. Why should they trust me? Why should they believe that I'm not going to rip them off? And I think, that there's a, I think there's some good reasons for that. One reason they should trust me is that I love them. And I've demonstrated that love to them. In their short lives, they've had plenty of opportunity to see that I love them. And I'm not going to hold back something that I think is good for them because I love them. I'm not going to give them something I think is bad for them because I love them. Another reason that they can trust me is because I'm, I'm wiser than they are. I have more life experience. I have a greater perspective. I have greater knowledge. And I can look ahead and I can see what their true needs are compared with what their perceived needs are. It's kind of similar with us and God, but even so, the example of a child with a parent falls pretty far short of describing the relationship between us and God. And the reason for that is that my love is something that's flawed. I have selfishness mingled and mixed in with my love, and that's always going to be true on this side of heaven. Also, my wisdom. My wisdom is limited. I don't know everything. I don't, I can't, I can't see how everything is going to unfold. The chance actually exists that my daughters could trust me and I could be making a bad decision. So my wisdom is limited. God's love, God's love is not flawed. There's not the slightest hint of selfishness or inconsistency mixed in with it. And God's wisdom, unlike mine, it's not limited. We don't run the risk of following him only to find out that God made a mistake somewhere along the line, and now we're paying the consequences of that mistake. Our trust in Christ is well-founded, and we can be content because we trust that like a loving and wise father. He's not going to rip us off in the end. He, is, he knows our needs, and he will meet them. The final contentment killer, and this is the one that is probably the biggest challenge for me personally and has been over the years, is I have my limits. The attitude that says, I have my limits. It sounds so reasonable. This is the subtle mindset that I will be content. I will put my hope and trust in Christ. But at a certain point, I reserve the right to be discontent. We tend to want to have an asterisk next to our contentment. You know, as long as I have my job, I can be content. As long as I have my health, that's a big one. As long as I have my health, I'll be content. As long as I have this person in my life, I'll be content. We want to set arbitrary limits on the degree to which we will be content. And what happens? What does it look like when the edge of one of these arbitrary limits is passed? Well, we go back to one of our favorite flavors of discontent. We feel that we have a reasonable right to get angry, to grow bitter, to throw a pity party, and to wallow in hurt. So this is perhaps the sneakiest of all the contentment killers. And uh, I think C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, does a really good job of describing this. And this is actually something that's been really helpful for me as I've seen this attitude in my own life. The Screwtape Letters, it's a fictional work. Uh, the idea is that it's supposed to be letters from 
a mentor demon writing to a younger demon about how to tempt someone, how to tempt an individual. And so the scenario is obviously fictional, but it has a lot of profound insight into how we tend to think. Here's what the older demon writes to the younger demon about how to tempt. He says, the thing to avoid is total contentment. Let his inner resolution be not to bear whatever comes to him, but to bear it for a reasonable period. And let that reasonable period be shorter than the trial is likely to last. So the key insight here is the distinction between total contentment and reasonable contentment. Unlike total contentment, reasonable contentment reserves the right to set limits. I will be content this far and no farther. For me, this distinction never really hit home until my wife and I started having kids. And honestly, having kids has really helped expose kind of some of the secret limits of my contentment that I didn't know that I had. For example, with a newborn, you know, I'll be content on five hours of sleep a night. That's reasonable. Four hours of sleep? When you have to start doing four hours of sleep? Well, that's not reasonable. I think I've reached a point where I have a right to be discontent. Or maybe, you know, sickness is... uh, Always a thing when you have little kids around. Maybe uh, someone in our family has been sick for 21 days in a row and, and I've been content. But on day 22, with no end in sight, well, I think at that point I'm entitled to some anger. I'm entitled to some self-pity. And so what should our response be when we recognize this, I have my limits, contentment killer? Well, let's see what Paul's response was. In chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, There's a theme in there that we can draw out that really helps us answer this question and know how we can respond. Look at at what he writes um, in this portion. One of the things he says is, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And he says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So Paul says, I can do everything in Christ. He has total contentment, not reasonable contentment. And our response to the, I have my limits contentment killer is to call it what it is, call it a lie and replace that with the truth. Counter it with the truth that I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now this verse here, verse 13, this is one of the more well-known verses in the Bible. the, The one that says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's often invoked in sports, kind of with the implication that because of Christ, I can jump higher and and run faster. If you were watching the Heisman presentation last night, you may have noticed there was an allusion to it in the acceptance speech. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying that because of Christ, he can face plenty or he can face want, and he can remain content regardless. What we'd like to see is that God promises us that if that we'll only be asked to endure to a certain extent. Instead, what we find is that God promises to provide strength to endure in every situation. It's not quite as comforting and requires a little more of us, but it's because of Christ that we can face our worst case scenarios in life. Not because of our great powers of endurance and not because of our, our cheerful dispositions, though some of us have more cheerful dispositions than others, but because Christ's strength is a factor that allows, that transcends our circumstances. So then how shall we summarize, how shall we summarize the secret to contentment that Paul talks about? Turns out that the secret to contentment that Paul is talking about, it's not a what, 
It's actually a who. And the who behind Paul's contentment is Christ. Contentment is possible when your hope is in Christ alone. Contentment is possible when you trust in Christ, knowing that he's not going to rip you off. And contentment is possible when the strength that fuels you through all circumstances is the limitless resources of Christ. So as we pass through December and into the new year, we need to expect highs and lows, they're coming. Disappointments, we all know those, those are coming. And when they do, we need to recognize them as a crossroads, a crossroads between content, contentment and discontentment. And realize there's actually a lot, of, a lot at stake when we get to those crossroads. And if you can recognize those contentment killers in yourself, then you can counter them with the truth from God's word and find that we can actually honor God and find joy. And finally, just a note for those of us, those of you who are parents in this room, that December is actually going to provide you with a lot of golden opportunities to help train your kids in this area of contentment. Real-life opportunities, real-life training opportunities are coming your way this December. And your kids are going to deal with disappointment as they do. Help them identify, yeah, you're at a crossroads right here. Help them identify, help them process their disappointment. Help them gain perspective. Help them see the truth from God's word about this and help them choose contentment. There's actually a really great opportunity for ourselves and for our kids to help us um, help us gain Christ's perspective this December. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have sent your son, Jesus. And we thank you that, um, that this time of year, we can be reminded of that and, um, and reflect on that. And God, I just, I pray that you would help us to set all of our hope in him, um, that he would be the one that we trust in. And Father, that we would rely on, uh, on his strength for the disappointments that we face. Father, I pray that you would use disappointments that happen, that you would use them to shape us, that we'd be more like your son. We'd be more like Jesus as a result of those. Help us not to miss those opportunities as they come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.